Good morning again. Ah, that's better. I haven't met you. My name is Glendon, and I'm running out of hands. All right. I'm tired because after the box won and I was watching, at one o'clock I was still awake because the adrenaline was still so in my body. Like, uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm tired. But uh, I had a nap this afternoon. So we're in the book of John. We are on week 25 of this series. It's taken us uh, half a year to get here in between other things. Uh, and we're going to continue off from where Terry preached last Sunday. And the context, we're going to read John 6 from verse 25. The context is that Jesus had just multiplied bread. He'd fed the 5,000 with his disciples. He then sends them over the lake. They're rowing on the boat. He goes up on a mountain and prays. And at the third watch of the night, I think, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., he sees them. Obviously, they haven't gone very far, right? They're straining at the oars. The boat is rocking. The wind is going wild. The waves are big. And he decides, shame these poor disciples. They're fishermen, but they don't know how to row a boat. So he walks out on the water, and they think he's a ghost. They freak out, but they invite him into the boat. And the moment he's in the boat, it's like this weird supernatural peace. It's like, like a horror movie. It just goes quiet. The waves stop. The, the air clears. Their hearts are still beating. And all of a sudden, they arrive on the other side, like the supernatural teleportation happens. And they're on the other side of the, of the Sea of Galilee. When they did that, that's the morning, like 5 a.m., right? On the other side where they'd left, other people arrived looking for Jesus. Because they'd heard this miracle. They'd heard about the signs he'd performing. And so we pick up in verse 25 of John chapter 6. Well, they then go back to the other side trying to find him. When they found him on the other side, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I say to you, I walked across the water. I did looketh like a ghost. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. He didn't say how he got there. He says, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him... God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, well, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. So they asked him again, what sign then will you give us? What evidence, what proof that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our ancestors, they ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and still you do not believe. Come on, get with the program. Tisanakis. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That should be our motto. 
We're here not to do my own will, my own thing, but to do God's will. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he's given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. First thing that I notice in this text is that it's incredibly obvious how shallow and lazy humans are. My first point this morning. It's amazing how shallow and lazy they are. This week, uh, so every year at Candice and I, we try and go on like a five-day hike. We love hiking together. We have a group of friends that we normally go with, like 10 or 12. And the last few years, we've gone in October on a five-day hike. And so this year, we also have planned a five-day hike. I wasn't able to attend for various reasons. So Candice was away hiking with the rest of our hiking buddies uh, in, in the Bavian's Cliff. And I was single parenting with our three kids for like six days. Lord have mercy on them. <laughs> and uh, very kindly, some of the friends who'd also gone on the hike, they'd left a little like gift pack, a little snack pack for the kids because shame, they were with dad for six days without mom. And so I doled out the little healthy snacks in their lunch boxes every day of the week and, uh, and they loved it. And I got to spend great time with the kids because there's no um, mom telling them to do homework and brush their teeth and bath and get clean and go to bed on time. And it's just dad, you know. I thought I was doing well. And so my oldest boy, he says to me, dad, it's been the most amazing week. I've loved it. Not obviously because he's missing mom. But I'm thinking, oh, I've done something great in my parenting walk. Like we've connected you know, like we've had these moments and reading stories and chatting and, Dad, it's been so good. Snacks in lunchbox every day. I'm like, oh my word, like, you know, your ego just deflates, you know. <laughs> like, he, he's so shallow. He's just thinking of his own stomach. And it's the same with these people with Jesus. They're so shallow. It seemed like they just followed Jesus to see the signs. They wanted entertainment, But then they got a meal for free before this. What a great church to go to, get a sermon and a meal. This is awesome. I'll go to that church. <laughs> and then notice what Jesus does. He just like, there's no filters with Jesus. He just puts it out there. He just says, you guys are looking for me in the hopes of more food and entertainment. That's why you crossed all the way back over the lake. You just want dinner and a movie. You're so shallow. That's what he's kind of saying between the lines. He's not being discreet. He's not being diplomatic. He's not politically correct. He's just like, yo, I can't believe it. You're so shallow. What's he doing? He's exposing the motive of their heart. And if you follow Jesus for any length of time, you'll know this is true. As a believer, God exposes sometimes the, the imperfect motives of our heart, right? Sometimes he's very direct, like with these people. When our motives are wrong or we're proud or we're arrogant and think we think we can do things by ourselves, sometimes it's like a gentle rebuke. Other times he's gentle with us, gentle with those who are weak. And the amazing thing is that he forgives us unconditionally when we come to him and we repent and we humble, he forgives us. And so this work of God in our heart to convict us of sin, 
convict us of stuff that's not helpful, that's a good thing because God is wanting to change us and mold us into the image of Jesus. Yeah? That's his intent. That's why he doesn't leave us to be as we are. He loves us so much, he doesn't leave us alone. Sometimes we wish he would just leave us alone. But we must not be upset or despise the work of the Holy Spirit to convict us of stuff that's just not lacquer in our lives because he's changing us. He wants us to make adjustments. Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's just stuff that's not helpful for whatever the call that God has for our lives. It's like a ceiling, although it might not be a sin. I've had this happen to me for all 20 years I've been following Jesus. I can remember as a, um, I got saved when I was 22. I started following Jesus when I was at university. And uh, the church that I got saved into, it was a remarkable church, Bible-believing, spirit-filled. They loved Jesus, preaching the gospel, seeing people saved, etc. Strong leadership culture. And so I looked up to the leaders, those who were leading life groups and leading mission trips and, and pastors, etc. And I desired that leadership. And the Bible says it's a noble thing to desire to lead God's people. But if I look back over the journey of how I got into becoming a leader, actually the motive was all wrong from the start. I had this hierarchical view of like, wow, when you're a leader, you're in authority. You have this, this power to tell people what to do. They look at you on the stage and they're impressed by you, you know? All the wrong motives. And God revealed those as I followed Him. Now I understand, decades later, that being a leader in God's kingdom and His church is about laying down your life for others and serving other people. But there were hard, tough moments of my motives being dealt with. Sometimes sorting out like something you've done wrong, like a bad choice or a bad decision or a sin, that can be quite easy to sort out. Remember a time in the previous church we were in about nine or ten years ago, uh, we were new to the church, we invited to join one of their leaders' meetings after after a Sunday service, and uh, the pastor was kind of talking and getting some feedback from the different leaders, etc., in the church. And one of the leaders, a young, young man, he stood up, he said, guys, I have to confess, I got drunk last weekend. That was a sin. I'm so sorry I let the team down. It was a beautiful, humble moment, this public confession of something he'd done wrong. And we all gathered around him, supported him, prayed for him. Beautiful moment. But sometimes it's easier to confess those kinds of sins, stuff we've done wrong, right? Done wrong, wrong. Not wrong, right? <laughs> you guys are so tired from the rugby. <laughs> sure, I'm going to just cut all the jokes out. It's not, it's not going to happen today. <laughs> I think it's harder to confess or repent or, or deal with a wrong motive rather than a wrong action. Because a wrong motive is, is we're doing the right stuff but for the wrong reasons. That's a whole lot harder to confess or to deal with or to repent or to work through. So here's a quick list. How do we know if we're following Jesus for shallow reasons? Write these down. There's probably a whole lot more. They're not on the screen, so you have to write quick. Our reasons are shallow if we read the Bible and pray only when we feel like it or only when it's convenient, or we only start reading the Bible and, and really praying like when there's some crisis in our lives and suddenly we need God. I think probably shallow if, if that's the only time we read the Bible and pray. 
I think our reasons for following are shallow. When we come to church on Sunday, and that depends on um, the weather. I'll just check the weather forecast in the morning, and then I'll decide if I'm going to come to church or not. Or it depends on how late we were out the night before. Kudos to most of us who watched the Bok game. Or it depends on the load shedding schedule. I don't know why that should determine our attendance on a Sunday. Our reasons are shallow when we're more of a spectator than a participant. We're quite happy to sit on the sidelines and be entertained rather than jumping in and helping out with the kingdom work. I think our reasons are shallow for following Jesus if we get offended for insignificant and petty things. I get that the church and leaders and people can hurt us. I'm not minimizing that, but I think most of the offenses within Christianity are really minor, small, petty things that just get blown out of proportion. I think our reasons for following are shallow. If God, the Bible, the church, our faith, all of that spiritual stuff is all about what I can get out of it. It's what's in it for me. I would say our reasons are possibly selfish. May the Lord convict you on any of those or any others. The great thing is that Jesus does expose our motives and they're often not pure, if we're honest, right? They're tainted, they're a bit tinged. You look at the conversation, that's not the end. Jesus continues to engage with these people. He continues to dialogue with them and he hasn't given up or rejected them despite their reasons not being so great. He talks to them, he asks them questions, they ask him questions. And this is my second point, is that Jesus welcomes everyone. No matter your past, no matter how terrible our motives are, no matter how much gunge is in our heart, Jesus doesn't chase us away. We see that from this text. And that's great news for all of us, because if we're honest, all of us are selfish to a greater or lesser degree. And Jesus doesn't cast us away when our weaknesses, our imperfections, our sin bubble up to the surface. No, he draws us closer to him. He engages with us, but he points out the stuff because he wants to change it. He wants us to change, to transform us into a greater people, into a kingdom people. This is his grace that our mess-ups don't alienate us from God if we're humble and we repent and we come to him. If we don't, well, then they are going to separate you from God if we're not humble, if we don't come to him. And this is the amazing thing about God. Even in our, think of the prodigal son, even in our pigsty, Jesus is there working with our flaws in the mess, like a potter smoothing out lumps of clay as he's going. And so my third point is that Jesus is teaching these people and us a deeper truth. This is what he says. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. I love how Jesus um, would use everyday things like bread or like water. Think of the woman at the well or like birth, Nicodemus, John chapter 3. uses everyday things to teach powerful, profound, simple truths. And you look at the conversations that he has with people throughout the Gospels and you'll see like these really simple everyday concepts being taken by Jesus and he teaches deep, profound things. Very simply, right? And so you, you analyze the conversations, like there's two levels. There's like Jesus talking about spiritual bread and spiritual food and eternal life, and the people talking about like my stomach 
and tasty bread and like the physical stuff. Like these two conversations going on, almost like they're missing each other. I just find it fascinating how Jesus teaches. And so he says, do not work for food that spoils. What does Jesus mean? These people were after free food. They were just shallow, right? They wanted a God, they wanted a king, they wanted a savior who would meet their material desires for gain. They wanted a God who would give them free stuff. And so they went to great lengths. They walked for miles to find Jesus. When they found that he wasn't on that side, they rode over to the other side in the boat. They went to great effort and lengths to try and get a free meal. And it's no different to us today, and I include myself. We spend lots of effort running after the things of this world. Here's a, a sad truth. I think it's almost universally true that people are more interested in material things than spiritual things. If there was a big sign over here that said, free money and free food, this would attract a bigger crowd than if there was a sign that said, spiritual fulfillment and eternal life. (laughs) Do we take as much trouble to seek the things of God? Would we take as much effort to find forgiveness for our sins, for spiritual power to follow His will? How much trouble and effort will we go through to to press in and, and lay hold of the life of God and the spiritual blessings that are found in Christ alone? I wonder. Challenging. Then he says, this food that I can give you, this food will endure to eternal life. In other words, the... The things of this world, they will fade away quickly. Earthly things are like money and and earthly pleasures. They deteriorate very easily. They're temporal. Ordinary food gives us physical life, physical strength, physical comfort. But Jesus says there's a spiritual food that you guys don't know anything about, talking to those people, that'll give you a spiritual strength that you can't get in any natural way. Jesus says it's he himself is that food, and it will endure to eternal life. In other words, an indestructible life cannot be broken or destroyed. Everything else passes away, and only those things that arise from the life that Jesus gives will carry on into eternity. He says it's a heavenly life, a godly life that goes on forever. It's God's life, it's God's character, God's energy that's working within us. And he says we only get it if we feed on Jesus. He is the only source of the spiritual food. And then the people ask this question, well, what should we do to do the works of God? In other words, what does God require of us, number four? That sounds like a good question, right? You read the sense in which it's written, and it's kind of they're asking this, tell us what to do to please God so we can get more bread. Tell us what to do to make God happy so we can benefit from this relationship. It's it's a selfish kind of question. And they wanted to please God by their works. What do we have to do? What do we have to tick off? What makes God happy so I can do it? And friends, for so many Christians, pleasing God comes down to the right formula. 
of doing stuff, of works, of activities, of performance to make him happy so I can get something from. The word of faith preachers do it a lot. Name it and claim it. There's a formula to get the blessing of God. I don't know if there is. And so Jesus doesn't answer with any kind of to-do list of what we should do to impress God or make him happy. He simply says, trust. Believe in the one that God has said. Have faith in him. And I think for me, faith has kind of two aspects. There's two components to our faith. There's a faith that we have for salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are saved by faith. The moment we put our faith in Jesus, we are born again, the Bible says. There's a saving faith that we have, that initial faith that, that gets us into the kingdom, that, that causes us to be a child of God. But there's also a faith that is a faith that we need to live every day. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says we live by faith, not by sight. So we can live in two ways. Once we have faith for salvation, there's two ways we can live. By faith, trusting in God, believing in the one that sent Jesus, or living by sight. The Galatian church, Galatians chapter 3, were kind of uh, rebuked by Paul for living by sight. He says, how come you've started so well? You started in the Spirit, but you're now trying to attain your goal through human effort. They started walking by sight. So Jesus says, all we have to do is believe, is to have faith, and that's faith for salvation and faith to live. And so the principle Jesus is kind of elaborating on is that there's a spiritual hunger in the world. There's a yearning for peace, peace with God, peace on earth, peace between people. There's a yearning for a clear conscience, forgiveness, overcoming sin, having purity, understanding the reason why we're on earth. There's a spiritual hunger in every human. Sometimes you don't know what it is or where to go to fill it. We, we try and fill it with all kinds of other things, material things, success, etc. But Jesus is saying that he's the bread of life. Everything else we try and fill it with will never actually satisfy. Only him, only he can satisfy this hunger. And as we live out our lives by faith, trusting in him, we live by faith, by the word of God, that hunger is completely satisfied. And that you can't buy for any money. God satisfies us completely. And they ask him for further evidence. Prove to us that you've come from God. Prove to us you are the word of God that's come down from heaven, the bread of the bread from heaven. Give us a sign so we can believe in you. And Jesus kind of answers, what other sign must I give? I've multiplied bread. I've walked on water. I've healed people. I've turned water into wine. All these things have happened. He says, I'm going to give you the word of God, the bread from heaven that sustains you, God's word. And I'm going to give you eternal life in and through me. I am the sign, Jesus is saying. It's my fifth point this morning. He is the sign. The best evidence that God loves you and me is that he sent Jesus to die on the cross. 1 John 4 and from verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. Not that this is how Jesus or God had ideas about loving us or wonderful high philosophical thoughts. This is how God 
demonstrated his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, there's no greater evidence that you can find anywhere that God loves us. That he, he physically, dem it wasn't just a feeling, it was an act of love that Jesus, the Son of God, was sent to earth to bear the sins of mankind, that we might be restored to God and have a relationship with our Father again. There's no other way. There's no other greater action that he's done. The death and resurrection of Jesus. And so lastly this morning, we can be certain of our eternity. We can be assured, we can be convinced like a rock that we're standing on of where we are headed in the very, very, very long run. Jesus says to the crowd that he will lose none of those that God has given him. This is, I think, our great comfort, that if we're born again, if we have a relationship with God, we've put our faith in him for salvation, we've received this eternal life, that nothing can pluck us out of his hand. So it must have been a great, um, a, it must have had a great impact on the disciples because they had just seen the previous day, it's fresh in their minds, Jesus multiplying bread. And they take the bread and, and they multiply it. As, they've seen amazing miracles. Jesus has walked on water. They've uh, seen the storm supernaturally calmed. They suddenly arrived on the other shore fresh in their minds, and then Jesus says, I will lose none of those God's given me. No one can pluck you from my hand if you come to me, if God draws you. Friends, there's no safer place to be than in the hand of God. There's no safer place because nothing can take you from his hand. Not circumstances, not people, not wars, not famine, not nations. Not trouble, not scandal, not demons, not angels, not the devil himself, not Donald Trump or ChatGPT. Nothing in all creation can take us from the hand of God. Nothing. There is nothing. Sometimes we think, or we have this image, that my faith, as I'm growing in my faith, I'm getting stronger in my faith, my faith, my reading the Bible, my praying, it, it's like my, I'm laying hold of God. I, I'm... I'm taking hold of God. And it's true, we must build our faith and lay hold of Christ more. And that's, I think, true in a small sense, but far greater when God takes hold of us. Nothing can take, him, take us from his hands. Our small faith can hold on to God and we must, but it's a small faith, it's a human faith, it's enabled by the Holy Spirit, sure, but far greater the hand of God laying hold of us. What a comfort, friends, to have this eternal life that we can be convinced of. Amen. I want to invite Brandon to come up in the band. We're going we're gonna to end with, with a song and we're going to share communion together. We're going to break bread during the song and allow God to work in our hearts. So can we stand together as the band are coming up? I'm going to pray for us as we Go into this time of responding to God and responding to His Word. Let's close our eyes. Let's, 
as the prophetic picture came this morning, where the apple of his eyes, let's fix our eyes on him. Father, this morning we see your incredible love for us in what was poured out on the cross and how even though our motives are sometimes so far off the mark, yet you don't turn us away, you don't reject us, but you work with us to change our hearts from the inside out. The Spirit of God gets inside us and sometimes there's a painful exposing that, that needs to happen or a confession and a repentance and a humility as we get our hearts right before God again. And Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who has not yet put their faith in you for the first time, they don't yet have a saving faith, this morning I pray as we worship, they would choose to put their faith in you. There might be a few people here this morning like that. As we worship, all you have to do is ask Jesus to rescue you. We admit that we are flawed, that we're imperfect, that we're sinners. We recognize that Jesus has died on the cross to take our sin away. That if we accept Him as our Lord and Savior, He makes us alive. We're born again. We become a new creation. It's a supernatural thing that happens. And so if you feel like that's for you today, as we worship, just pray quietly in your heart. Lord, that's me. I want to give my life to you. I want to be born again. You can simply put your faith in God as we're worshiping. For the rest of us, Lord, God, I pray. It's all about the heart. It's all about looking into your eyes and pleasing you, not by our works, not by a formula, not trying to impress you, but the works that you require are simply to trust in you, to believe in you. And so I pray, Father, for a life categorized by faith, hearing what you say and responding delighting in our heavenly Father, being with Him in His presence. And as Jesus said, doing the will of my Father here on earth. Let's worship, friends. We'll break bread in a few minutes, but let's worship Him and respond in worship.